Welcome to McKnight's Long-Term Care Newsmakers Podcast, where we share the latest information and views from industry leaders. Hi, I'm McKnight's Long-Term Care News Senior Editor, Kim Marcellus. Today, my guest is Dan L. Dodson, CEO of Fortified Health Security. His organization publishes an annual report pinpointing cybersecurity threats to the healthcare sector. From all appearances, 2023 is shaping up to be an active, high-consequence year. Another one, I guess we could say. While the government is working to disrupt known hacking groups that have demanded high-dollar ransoms from some healthcare providers, including at least one large-skilled nursing provider, new threats are always moving into the void. Welcome, Dan, and thanks for agreeing to walk us through the dark side. Kim, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk today and share some insights on what we're seeing in the market, and hopefully we can... Uh, glean some things together so we can all increase our security postures uh, today. So thanks. Absolutely. So I'm sure I don't have to tell you this, but for years, nursing homes have really underspent on technology, particularly compared to the acute care peers. Uh, So now they're also facing staffing and financial crises, and many have put their resources elsewhere and put off some needed tech upgrades. Can you talk a little bit about how delaying those upgrades might increase risk in this environment that we all operate in now? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I think risks would manifest itself in a couple of different areas. Uh, It really depends on where you're delaying your technology upgrades, whether that's in your servers or what we call infrastructure, or whether that's in maybe the applications that you're using. And one of the things that we all want to be mindful of is that when you look at certain technologies, um, every type of technology has vulnerabilities that will be you know, or become prevalent, or we will be aware of those over time. That's just the nature of of software and our adversaries. And so we have to take steps to close those vulnerabilities or or patch them as we we think about it in the security world. And so as you not uh, invest in technology and as you delay those types of things, you may be running legacy technology where those vulnerabilities exist, um, but the manufacturer of that software, that technology may not be offering you up the patches to close those vulnerabilities. So that's one thing to be thinking about. Um, the other thing to be thinking about is, you know, how are we educating the users of our technologies, uh, you know, within our um, organizations so that they recognize, you know, what could be a malicious email or what could be a, a, a an attack like that so we can make sure our staffs really understand kind of throughout the skilled nursing facility um, where those threats are and how they might exist. So talk to us a little bit more about the biggest types of threats for 2023. I know some years we see really trendy things and some years it's kind of more of the same of what we saw the year before. Do you have any predictions? Yeah, great question, Kim. Really appreciate that. You know, I think the attack vector, which means how our adversaries or hackers get into uh, facilities, um, it changes and evolves over time, right? The, the, the how they enter it, um, uh, the way that they try to manipulate um, the systems, you know, evolves and changes. But what has stayed constant and what I would remind people about is most of the entry point into your facility is going to be via email, what we call phishing, which means they send to a person on your staff a fake email um, that has a link in it. And if a associate of your skilled nursing facility clicks on that link, it will then deploy 
a virus or malware, as we call it today, that could disrupt your organization. So that kind of access point, Kim, has been consistent year over year as the number one access point for, um, you know, attacks, if you will. Okay. And we expect that to be consistent in 23. And I, I guess also I'm thinking, you know, what are we looking at? Malware? Malware? How do you say it, first of all? Malware. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, you know, are we looking at that? Are we looking at um, destructive, you know, are they, are they trying to get our assets? Are they trying to destroy and make trouble? You know, what, what do we see the motivation for hackers being in the healthcare space? Yeah, the adversarial intent typically is for monetary gain. Uh, Kim, so, you know, we, they want to get into your healthcare organization so they can extract, uh, you know, medical records and data so that they can exploit that data uh, in multiple ways. One way could be um, holding the organization ransom. We call that ransomware, right? Where they say, hey, if you pay us money, we'll give you back your data and we won't share it with anybody else, right? Um, that's a type of attack that, that we see quite often. Um, they could also use that data and sell it on the black market, uh, the dark web, as, as you as as you will. Um, it's kind of an underground, untraceable side of the internet, if you will, that they can exchange that data. And the reason why they attack healthcare so much is the healthcare data is extremely valuable uh, because you can monetize it in multiple ways. So I think about a a profile of a patient. You're going to see credit card information, you're going to see medical information, you can fraudulently bill Medicare, Medicaid, uh, you can use it for, um, you know, fraudulent medical tourism. Um, you can, I mean, there's just so many different ways that, that bad actors can monetize that information, number one. Number two, you know, we've all had our credit card compromised, right, Kim? It, it happens. And when that happens, you, what, you cancel it and you get a new credit card, right? And it's a pain in the neck and you got to, you know, kind of change where your account's being withdrawn and stuff like that. But you can't do that with a medical record. Mm-hmm. And that that creates an inherent value uh, with that record over time. Okay, so you talked a little bit about the main way hackers are getting in and how you expect that to be the same this year. Let's talk about some solutions and what are two or three things that providers can do internally to ensure they're protected? Yeah, great question. So I think, I think one thing uh, that I would recommend is analyze the staff that you have and recognize whether or not they need external corporate email, right? Now, this is oftentimes more of a cultural thing uh, than a uh, business need thing. What I mean by that is there are certain folks in your organization that have to have externally facing email, right? I've got to talk to an email client or I've got to email um, you know, a, a third-party billing company or something like that. But there's other people that may not need external email. And so the question really becomes, can I limit the number of people that have external email uh, because then uh, my attack surface, if you will, is reduced, right? Okay. Now, that, again, that's a cultural thing, not necessarily uh, an IT thing, but certainly something to consider given the fact that email is the number one attack vector. So that's one thing I think I would look at. Um, the second thing I would look at is, you know, given the fact that access through email is our number one attack vector, what is the organization doing for email uh, phishing simulation 
um, which basically tests your users on whether or not they're likely to click on a fake email, right? So how do we educate uh, our end users? How do we test the end users so we can give follow-up education? And you can execute these types of phishing programs for a reasonable amount of money. So if we can reduce the attack surface and we can do, you know, targeted phishing exercises against our population to better educate them, we're going to reduce risk, which is really what we're trying to do here. That's a really interesting one because I, to me, it brings to mind, I know our company, most corporations have testing programs, training programs, and all these security concerns. But I also know that if I'm working in a short staff building, um, if we're going to cut back on things, training's probably high at the list. You know, how, how do we make sure that this doesn't get overlooked um, in terms of training and, and education? And so testing, obviously, is uh, something that you have to keep to a schedule on and keep doing. You can't just do it once and forget it, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And, and one way to think about it is, you know, if you if you test the population, say, quarterly, right, and, you know, person, you know, A, doesn't click on it, well, he or she's not going to get any additional training because they frankly passed the test, if you will, right? Whereas, you know, person B may click on it. And so maybe that person gets a follow-up remediation, uh, you know, vid- quick video via email. That's t- that's 10 seconds that, that says, hey, shouldn't have clicked on this, right? Um, so that way we don't totally disrupt, um, you know, the clinical workflow or their daily, you know, business activities because, as you mentioned, you know, staffing is certainly an issue. So let me ask you a little bit. Did you have any other examples about self-protection before we move on? You know, I, I think those are the biggest ones that aren't going to cost, uh, you know, a significant amount of money. Um, you know, obviously, you know, we, we highly recommend, you know, doing a risk assessment, putting a full program in place, um, which is just kind of best practice um, across the organization. But those are the two ones that I would say, hey, do you want to reduce quick, reduce risk quickly, uh, let's consider those two. Okay. So the other part of that then is you, your survey points to a previous financial outlook um, that health systems said 87% of them were planning to somewhat increase or significantly increase cybersecurity spending. Uh, But I want to point out, you can't just throw money at this problem. Every facility is going to have different needs, um, different threats. So can you talk about key defenses that nursing homes might want to um, strengthen, even if there is a cost associated with that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, uh, Kim, and you're absolutely correct. Every healthcare organization is at a different uh, point in time in their cybersecurity journey. They may have different infrastructure. They may have made prior investments. And as I always tell folks, you know, healthcare in general has enterprise cybersecurity risk on SMB budgets. Whether you're the biggest hospital or, 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 or a multi-facility skilled nursing uh, organization or a single you know, skilled nursing facility, it uh, doesn't really matter. You, you have that same economic dynamic. And so when we, when we look at deploying capital uh, for cybersecurity, it really starts out with what is the risk, at, risk profile of the organization. So we recommend organizations do a risk assessment which really highlights where are the biggest areas of risk for you. Um, And then we can measure that against the likelihood and exploitability so that the organization can understand, okay, where are my risk areas? What's the likelihood uh, and impact? And then from that, we can deploy, you know, very pointed 
capital so that we can reduce that risk over time. And, and frankly, that program will differ based on size and scope and maturity of, of one, one healthcare organization to the next. So what do you make of some of the costlier programs out there, whether that's like a third-party management service uh, to help you deal with your vendors and how you're sharing information with them, or even cybersecurity insurance policies? Again, just thinking of where nursing homes are right now, and most many are operating in negative territory, how, you know, how do they weigh whether these are things they need to or want to invest in? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think the the cyber insurance uh, landscape has certainly evolved a lot over the last two years. Um, you know, we're seeing pretty significant increases in premiums for uh, less protection, mm-hmm. uh, so more more cost, less coverage, if you will. Um, we do still see that's a great tool to have in the toolkit, uh, Kim. If that's something that you ever need, um, we would recommend folks look at, you know. What are you actually signing up for when you subscribe to that insurance? Uh, we think that that's really important as part of the underwriting process. It is a great uh, key, though, uh, as part of a program. Um, you know, I, I think as you think about operating in the red um, and deploying, you know, capital, there are certainly um, programs out there where you can partner with the managed services provider. I think it's unrealistic for, um, you know, these uh, facilities to invest in their own cyber staff, right? I mean, it's just, it, it would just be too expensive and, and it would be too challenging. And so I think, you know, finding a partner that can help you analyze the risk and put a program in place that you can execute against probably makes the most amount of sense um, cost-effective wise um, and, and gives you the most amount of protection. Okay. Good insights, Dan. Thank you so much for sharing some tips. I know, again, we we kept this conversation pretty high level, but I want to point out um, that Fortify does do the Horizon Report annually. So please uh, look for that. Uh, We'll obviously be covering cybersecurity issues here at McKnight's for the rest of the year and hope that you'll rely on us. And for today, we thank you for tuning in. This is Kim Marcellus from McKnight's. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to McKnight's Long-Term Care Newsmakers podcast. For the latest in long-term care news, visit mcknights.com.